Well, good morning to you all. Good to see you this new year, right? 2019, here we are. And, uh, you know, Cole was mentioning something about the, the Christmas time and visiting and friends and expectations and all the joys and so on of that. But, you know, there are always, along with those lovely times that we envision, there are always disappointments that go along with those. I don't know if you've noticed any of that. Maybe, maybe your Christmas was just perfect, sort of like one of those Hallmark romance movies. I was going to ask you if anybody would actually own up to actually watching one of those over the Christmas time. Hey, see, there are a few. Look at this. All around, look at this. <laughs> what I've noticed about those Hallmark movies is that they are just, besides being absolutely sappy, they do not have within them this kind of stuff of the usual Hollywood movies. Like, they don't have um, the usual themes, like violence and immorality and darkness and cynicism. They don't have that, right? What they have uh, instead is overly, an overly simplistic view of love and relationships, shallow, downright hokey, schmaltzy, syrupy and sappy and have you noticed that the final kiss in a two-hour movie comes at one hour and 58 minutes have you seen that <laughs> but they do kind of make us feel better it's a total diversion isn't it a eh? from like the reality of life now it's interesting to me uh, we had we were starting on a, a series for this month on the parables and we are going to do that starting next week. But as the, as the last couple of weeks have gone along, I, I really sensed, and I checked it out with a few other people as well, that there might be something else that would be more, I shouldn't say more important, because what part of the Bible would you choose that's more important? But anyway, that there was something that was more significant for us as a congregation as we start this new year to consider. And um, so... I don't know how your expectations are for 2019, but as we were just singing here just a minute ago, there's this sense that God is with us, therefore I will not fear. And I know that some people entering into a new year, they feel a lot of, oh my, what is going to happen this year? What could go wrong this year? Or it could be that we have another option to say, you know what, God is with us, and he's he, he's going to be walking with us through the whole of this year. And so whatever brings, we have the God of the universe who's with us and in us and who will walk through everything with us. So when we consider um, all these things, we know that there are disappointments in life. Where do we go for our help and our strength and our vision for the future that God has for us? So the title today is Resiliency. A resiliency that is rooted in faith. I think this is an important thought uh, for all of us. There is a story that came from the time of Mao Zedong in China of a pastor by the name of Epaphras. He uh, was a fairly well-known pastor. He was, he was uh, captured and he was arrested and put into prison for preaching the gospel at that time. And when he was in prison, he seemed to have this incredible amount of joy that he was spreading around to everybody in the prison. And he was asked, how, how is this that you can do this? And he said, well, the Lord has told me 
that I am to give up everything, take up my cross every day, and follow him. And as I do this, I realize that this is the path that Jesus trod. This is exactly the path that Jesus did ahead of me. He took up his cross daily, and he made a difference in the world. And so this is my greatest joy, to follow Jesus and to be like Jesus in the world. This, um, this is amazing. Karl Barth said that joy is a defiant nevertheless. In other words, I see all the circumstances around me, but out of faith, it's like we, we raise this feisty fist of faith. And we say, God is with us. Whatever the circumstances are, the Lord is with us. The Lord is at work. And we are moving ahead. I think we all know that Christianity is supposed to be about joy in our hearts. And in, even in spite of circumstances. Um, I wonder sometimes why I wrestle with this. Um, why do things in life affect me so much? Are you with me in this? Um, that the Bible sort of instructs me that I should at least be quietly happy in, in the situations of life. Then why do things affect me so much? I know that joy can overcome grief and that the presence of the Lord in our lives can reconcile the relationships around us. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his followers, that would be us, that the full measure of his joy might be in us. And in John 16, he said that nobody can take away my joy from my people. So, um, it's a great challenge for us as we live in the reality of our broken lives in a broken world to have this happening in us. So, um, we want to take a look at a passage of Scripture then that I think will help us a lot with this. It certainly helps me. And this passage of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 8. And we'd like to um, look at this. This is from the New International Version. So I wonder, it's a new year. Would you stand with me and we'll read this text together? <laughs> we don't have to do it every time, but let's do it. It's the Word of God. Let's see what he says. Here we are. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I'll just remain standing for a second. Lord, we've read your word. We believe these words come from you, inspired through your Holy Spirit. And we come to you in the imperfection of our lives, of our experiences. And we ask you in the mystery of your Holy Spirit to lead us deeper into the wisdom and the truth that you're sharing with us this morning in this passage. Help us, Lord, so that out of this, we will be people who walk in your strength and your power 
and the mystery of your presence, even in difficult circumstances, so that we become more like Jesus, conformed to the image of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus, in the way we live and talk and act in all things. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Please be seated. Um, I think we have a bit of an issue, a few questions, as we read this passage of Scripture. A couple of questions that might come to our mind are these. Number one, is this too dogmatic? Because Paul, in writing this, he says that we know. Do we really know this? I mean, is this an absolutely established fact that is just the truth for all of us? Or is this a hard-fought truth that has been learned in the crucible of life and has been revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Paul says we know this. The second question we might have about the text is this. When Paul says all things, that God works in all things, we can think about things that don't seem to work out for good at all. In fact, they're just bad. And is, when Paul says this, it just feels too sweeping about all things. This is what we want to look at this morning to work through this passage of Scripture and see what God is telling us today. So, first of all, I think we need a really good translation of this first verse. And I think this is a more literal translation of what is being said here. And we know that for those loving him, for those loving God, that God works together all things for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. The subject of the sentence is actually God. The subject of the sentence is not all things. It's not saying that, oh, everything's just going to work out okay. All things are going to work out fine. The subject of the sentence is God, that God is at work in the things of this world, even the things that don't make sense to us and that are most difficult for us. Now, uh, a few points that come out of this consideration. The the first thing is this, that um, God wants to work all things for good, and he is working in every situation, even when the situation is bad. For those loving him, God works together all things for good. A few points to consider on this. Well, the first is that all things happen to Christians. All things happen to Christians. This is very important for us to know and to accept this. Uh, if we are to have a relentless joy and a resiliency in our life, all things happen to Christians. Our circumstances are like the circumstances of other people. Now, I know that some Christians teach that bad things will not happen to followers of Christ. That if you love God, you should be healthy all the time and wealthy and everything should go well for you. But this, in this text, God tells us and experience shows us 
that all the same things that happen to other people also happen to followers of Jesus Christ. All things. In fact, if we were to look at Romans 8 and 35, which I'd like to do for you just now, Paul is talking here a little later in the passage. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? He's saying these things happen to us, but they can't separate us from the love of God. Uh, Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, um, all things happen to Christians. The second point that we could make from here is that when things work together for good, it's God who's working them for good. That in fact, in our world, all things naturally run down and fall apart. Um, you just need to look at your garage to realize that that's the truth, right? Always going from order to disorder, and you have to keep working at that to make it happen. All things fall apart. It's the nature of our world. Because of the fall, because of the entrance of sin into our world, things are running down, and things are falling apart. And um, in talking with somebody this week, it, it, it was made clear to me that here, in the wealthy West, we're able to live in the illusion that everything about life should be good and everything about life should work. In many other countries in the world, that illusion isn't there at all. Kids learn this very, very early in life. Things just don't work out the way they're supposed to work out, so so there it is. Um, We we think uh, that we are living that we are existing in the land of the living and moving towards the land of the dying. And everything should be right here in the land of the living. I had a professor at seminary who said that to us one day sitting there. He said, we think we are living, we think we're existing in the land of the living and moving towards the land of the dying. He said, nothing could be farther from the truth. We live in the land of the dying Everything's dying. Everything's running down here. But we're moving towards the land of the living. Everything's broken around us. And when things work well for us and good, it's the grace and mercy of God that's making that happen for us. Suffering is part of the fabric of life. So, we expect everything to go right, and if it doesn't go right, we're going to sue, right? (laughs) So, friends, if you have health today, that's a gift of the mercy of God. We sometimes sing every breath is, is his gift. If you have people who love you today, that's a gift of God. That's a mercy of God. If you have bread on the table and a place to sleep, and those things are mercies of God, and we ought to thank him for them. When things work together for good, it's God who's working them for good, and that cultivates a thankful heart within us. And the third thought that comes out of this is that though bad things happen, God works for good, even in the midst of the awful things that happen in life. 
Um, this is not saying that the bad things are good. This is not saying that the bad things that happen in life, we're supposed to call them good somehow or other. I think of Jesus when he came to, <clears throat> to Lazarus, after Lazarus had died, and the scripture tells us that Jesus wept and he was angry. Why? There are lots of explanations potentially why, but I think Jesus wept because he could see what death had done in the grieving of all the people around. And he was angry because death is bad. In itself, bad in itself, we are not asked to put our heads in the sand or to have blind optimism or to live in denial. But we are to believe that in the midst of even the tough things of life, God will bring a good effect. God hates death. He hates addictions and abuses. He hates pain and alienation and loneliness and suffering. He did not create things to be that way. He hates it so much that he came here to the earth in the person of Jesus to experience it all in full, so that he could help us and save us in the midst of this, God takes the bad things and he works for good in totality. He will bring a good effect. And so all of these things then are not on our timeline. His working things for good are not on our timeline. We do not always see the good that happens. Um, I think I told you a few weeks ago about my father, and I think one of the most, one of the biggest losses in my life was the loss of my mother when I was 19 years old. So she was just 51. She seemed to be in good health. She was a wonderful piano player, and she made a mistake on Christmas Eve with her left hand when she was playing the piano. And what came out of that was that she had uh, a brain tumor. And I was away at university as a 19-year-old away at university. I got a call from my brother on a Monday and said, Mama's really sick. We lived in Brantford. He said, she's been taken to the Hamilton General Hospital. Seems to be maybe a brain tumor. So I went and talked with my profs the next day. I came home. I stayed with my dad for a while. And actually, to make a long story short, eight days later, she passed away um, after some exploratory surgery. And I remember just the crushing loss of this. Where is God in the midst of this? How could this how could God ever take this tragedy and move it towards anything good? And I think I told you a couple of weeks ago also about us being in the receiving line and the casket was over here and people were coming through and somebody from our church came up to my dad and said, well, don't worry, brother. Romans 8.28 is still in the book. And my dad said, I felt like popping him. I raised my left hand because he was left-handed. He said, I've been awake the last three nights without any sleep, wondering how in God's name is this ever going to be redeemed or redeemable? How can God possibly work in the midst of this thing? 
There are times that we use scriptures out of context, and we use them in ways that are actually very hurtful. And we don't always see the good things that God brings out of the difficulties. Because it's not on our timeline. I was thinking about the things, though, that really hurt us. What are the things that really hurt us in this life? Aren't they selfishness and pride and our foolishness and our hard heart and our disunity and unforgiveness and fighting over things? And maybe especially the belief that we don't need God to work through the things of this life. So when God comes and promises us that he's working in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances of life, the promise is not that he's going to lead us into better circumstances, but that he's actually going to give us a better way of handling life. He's going to be working within us to change us more into the character of Jesus in the midst of our life. In the short run, selfishness feels pretty good, but it'll kill us in the long run. And so we find ourselves really in, in the middle of the story where we are going through difficult times. We don't understand them all. We don't know how God is going to work things out for good eventually, but we trust him in the midst of it. And I was thinking that this is just like so many characters in the Bible, like Abraham, when he left his home and was wandering out of Ur and wandering to find the, you know, where he was supposed to go. He didn't know where he was going. He's in the middle of the story. Joseph, when he was sold by his brothers and thrown in a pit and then sold as a, as a slave, and then he tried to be the best slave he could, and for that he got thrown into prison, and he stayed in prison for the longest time. He's in the middle of the story. And the Israelites, as they're present in, as slaves in Egypt, and finally they're released, they have freedom. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years, which is the lifespan, basically, of most of them. They're in the middle of the story. They don't see the end product. Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, he's in the middle of the story. Mary, weeping at the tomb of Jesus, is in the middle of the story. And we're in the middle of the story as well. We can trust God in the middle of the story. So it brings us then to this next point, and, and that is that the good things that we have cannot be lost. The good things that we have cannot be lost. I want to read to you the next verse of Scripture. It says this, For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. The really good things that God wants to work in us are the, are, are the refining of our character, the transformation of our character to become more like Jesus. The promise in this passage is not for better circumstances, but for a better life, becoming more and more like Jesus, and then finding the life that he has for us in the midst of our context. Jesus Christ did not suffer so that we would not suffer. He, he suffered so that when we suffer, we could become more like him in our character and find his better life for us. And in this passage, it says, 
predestined. That's not meant to be sort of um, a problem for us, a bother for us. It's meant to be a comfort for us that in God's mind, it's fixed. That he's going to be working in our lives, even in the most difficult of circumstances, to conform us to be more like Jesus. That in God's mind, his desire is for us to become more and more like Jesus because that's really good for us, to have the character of Christ formed in us. God will do this if we love him. And to be conformed to his likeness is not an, anything about an outward appearance, but it's all about being transformed in our inner selves, a change in our inner essence, so we will become more passionate, not about rules and religion and that kind of stuff, but more passionate about having the character of Jesus formed in us more and more. More truth, more truth spoken in love, more wisdom and courage. In other words, being more truly human. This is God's desire for us. The good that God is moving us toward is a goodness of character, shaped more and more like Jesus, more compassion, more courage, more sensitivity, more love and wisdom, more grace and mercy given out to other people. And as we do this, as we do this and God works in our lives, it's not because of our circumstances. It's because of God's good working in our hearts and our lives. This is actually a beautiful picture of who you are. Being conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is an incredible honor for us to become more and more like Jesus in our world, to make a difference in our world as Jesus did in his. You are becoming as beautiful as Jesus. It's a lovely thing. And God's gonna do that this year, forming our character more and more. God is at work. Now, I know that the end of this text, when it says here, actually in the Greek and, and when it says in most of our Bibles too, is that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's um, gender insensitive. Uh, the text that was written on the board here has included brothers and sisters. But the way it's written is just brothers. He'll be the firstborn among many brothers. And this is hard for us because it is gender insensitive. But let me say this first of all. This is talking about, about adoption, about us being adopted into God's family and treated like the firstborn. Um, we have four kids, uh, and our fourth child is adopted. And sometimes we forget which one is adopted. He's just one of the kids, right? He's a full heir. He's a full member of the family. Well, that's how God is with us as well. And back in Roman times, uh, adoption had to do usually with a wealthy person who had no heir and so would, ad 
would bring someone into the household who would serve them and who would grow up there, and then the wealthy person would adopt this person to be his heir as an adult. And when the person was adopted, this person, there was a formal thing that was, that was gone through to make that happen, but when this person was officially adopted, all of their debts were absolutely washed away, gone. And in fact, this newly adopted person became very wealthy because they were now the son of this very wealthy person. And that this transaction that had happened was not just a temporary thing, but it was forever. For this person to be a member of this family, a full heir, forever and ever. That's what God does with us when he brings us into his family. Now let's go back to the gender insensitive thing. I heard this story of a woman who was raised in a culture, a non-Western culture, where boys got more than the girls. It was very clear to her as she was growing up that her brother, her own, she had one brother, that her brother always got more than she did, and she always got less because she was just a girl. That's how it was in her culture. And when this woman became a Christian, she read this passage, and it said, the firstborn among many brothers. And as she looked at this, she realized that Paul was in exactly the same culture, male-dominated, male-preferred culture. And as she read this, she realized that all of us, male and female, are treated in God's family as if we're the firstborn son. That there's no difference. She felt in her family growing up that there was a first class, and that was the son, and she was the second class as a daughter. But that in God's family, there's no second class. That we're all first class in God's family. We're all treated as the firstborn. And in fact, this is surely what God is saying in Galatians 3, um, when he says that in Christ, there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. All of us loved, cherished by the God of heaven above. And you know what? For me, as a white male, I've never been excluded like that. And I see this passage as a powerful and subversive passage that, and truth that when you become a Christian, all that Christ has done is yours. It's given to you. You're an heir of all that Christ has done. How wonderful is that? Um, and your circumstances, whatever happens in life to you, can never change this. In life and in death, we belong to Jesus as a firstborn, beloved child, and nothing can take that away from us, ever. You're loved and honored, just like Jesus is loved and honored, and your circumstances can never change this. And when you live out of this identity, that we are beloved, chosen, sons and daughters of the living God. There's a power to this. We find a joy and really a better life, a resiliency that's based in faith, no matter what our context is. And it brings us to the last point, and that is that the best is yet to come. Our 
Good things that we have cannot be lost, but the best things are yet to come. So I read this last verse. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, justified, it's this wonderful truth that when we trust in Jesus Christ, he justifies us. He declares us not guilty, even though we know we're guilty. We have been guilty, and even we're still guilty. (laughs) But he declares us not guilty, and he treats us that way as his beloved son or daughter. We're justified. But what about this idea of being glorified? That's when Jesus perfects his refining and his transformation in our lives, and when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is, Scripture tells us. So God's working this in us now, transforming us to be more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But one day it'll be absolutely complete, and we will be like Jesus, we'll be glorified and present with him forever. When we understand what is to come, we can face whatever circumstances we have to face right here and now. In the world's grand finale, everything will be made right in the new heavens and the new earth. The creator of the universe comes to us working to redeem everything, even the whole of creation. If you read through the rest of Romans 8, we see that all of creation is groaning and longing for that day when God will make everything right and we do ourselves. Somehow, in the mystery of our wonder-working God, God will knit everything together, all things, even the evil and the suffering and the grief and the heart-wrenching losses, and he'll bring good. This does not trivialize the suffering that we're going through. This takes suffering very seriously, Only Jesus can address our times of suffering like this. What else? Where else can we go to deal with the hurts and disappointments of life? Your soul is too great to deal with these things in any other way. The peace that we have in the circumstances of life are not because of our circumstances, but because we have a good, good Father who is at work and who loves us and has brought us into his family. This passage of scripture really deals with this long history from eternity past to eternity future. That in eternity past, God knew us, he chose us to be his own, and uh, in in, in the present, he has worked in our lives through his Holy Spirit to show us the truth about Jesus and enter us into his life and enter into the transformation that he gives us, and to eternity future, where one day we'll be made totally and perfectly like Jesus, and live with him in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a grand sweep of history. So how do we walk through then the difficulties of this world? And I just have a few suggestions, and then we're done. When we see that other people are going through times of suffering, what do we do? We need to be there for them. It's the, called the gift of presence, that we're present. Sometimes it's difficult, eh, when people are going through difficult times, but we're there. 
We give them the gift of present, a visit, a note. We bring a meal or we do something of the sort. Sharing the love of Christ with those who are going through times of difficulty. And often it's in times of silence. I um, had a woman share with me some time ago that she loves to teach and that often in times of talking with people, she would be wanting to teach them and tell them things that would help them. But she went to visit somebody who was really in the midst of a struggle and uh, every time she wanted to say something to the woman, she felt this thing in her heart and her mind, just be silent, which she took as the Holy Spirit, right? Just be silent and wait and listen. So she listened and listened and listened. And she always had more things to say, but she was just silent. When she came to the end, she said, well, can I pray for you before I go? And she prayed for her friend, and then she left. And later on, she got a phone call from her friend, and her friend said, you know, this was the most meaningful and helpful visit that I've ever had with you. Thank you so much. Sometimes it's the gift of presence. We're just there. The second thing we can do is we can pray for other people and with other people. I remember a good friend of ours, Ruth and mine, who had lost her husband and was going through a time of really difficult grieving. And we went and talked with her, and she said, you know, I've been a prayer person all my life. I can't even pray now. I don't know what to say. And we said to her, it's okay. We're praying for you. We're adding to the prayers that you had. And you know what else? Your groans to God are more eloquent than any words. But we can pray with people in their times of difficulty and allow other people to pray for us when we're in our times of difficulty. Um, Thirdly, we can preach to ourselves. We can read the scriptures and preach to ourselves from the scripture. Psalm 42 puts it this way. The writer writing out of a time of deep darkness and struggle and probably deep depression preaches to himself and says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And for us to do this, to encourage ourselves, we can read through the scriptures and shout them out to God. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably many of you have felt this. We can cry it out to God. He's big enough to take it. Remember that Jesus felt exactly the same thing. And in the midst of all this, we must remember Jesus, that he is with us in the midst of our suffering. He comes to us as the wounded healer. This is the understanding of the crucified Christ, that he has not removed himself from the suffering of the world. In fact, he has stepped right into the midst of it all, and he bears our suffering, and he shares our suffering with us. He suffers alongside us. God comes to us as the crucified one, the wounded one. And as we face our trials, he shares them with us. And as we do this, we remember Jesus, the wounded healer. We remember also that God never intended grieving and going through suffering to be a solitary journey. He always intended for us to be together with one another, going through the journey together. And, and 
never to go this solo. And this is not about being single or married or anything like that. It's that as the body of Christ, as the family of Christ, we are to share with one another as we go through our, our times. So I have a good friend who's a chaplain, and he actually works with, um, with vets uh, who've been in battle and other things. And anyway, he was talking to somebody just last week. He told me this on the weekend. He said, I was talking with an older guy who was going through a difficult time, and uh, he said, well, have you thought about God? And the old guy said, I gave up on God a long time ago. He never did anything for me. And my friend Daryl, he said, well, um, my first wife died in 1987, and a few years later I married again, and my second wife died two years ago, 2016. And uh, he said, I honestly don't know how I would have made it through that with, without my relationship with God and without my friendship with my fellow Christians at church. And this old guy was there and he said, that sounds like an honest answer to me. And Daryl said, you know what it is? I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. He's real and he's with me in the midst of my struggles. We must remember Jesus, that he's with us in the midst of our struggles, and we must remember heaven. It's primarily in the rich West that we have decreased our teaching about heaven. Do you know that? The slaves had lots of songs about heaven. In many places where there's struggle and suffering in the world, there's a big focus on heaven that God has for us. This is not escapism. This is just the hope and the truth that God has for us that strengthens us and empowers us in the midst of a very imperfect and broken world. And so there's this vision of heaven, if you read through Revelation, of the door standing wide open. I love that image. It's not like the door is slammed and I'm going to just, okay, what it, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? But the door is wide open. And in there is our Jesus, whose wounds are still visible in that physical resurrected body. His wounds are still there, and he will wipe away every tear. And that's good news. I close with this thought that I think there are two platforms that we can stand on to look at life. One is the fall and the brokenness and the sin and evil that's in the world. And we see it all around us, don't we? You just have to listen to the news and you hear about murders and crimes and wars and all kinds of things and famines. So we could stand on this platform of the fall and just say, you know what, isn't the world like that? Oh, it's just so tough and difficult and so on. But there's another platform, and that's the platform of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has to do with the fact that God came to us in the person of Jesus, lived this perfect life, died on the cross, took our suffering, took our sin, took our shame, took everything on himself so that he could help us and then rose again with great power so that the resurrection life could be in us. The truth of the fall is still there, the evidence is still there, but the newness of the resurrection is here. God wants to be working this resurrection power in us and helping us to be agents of his resurrection power out in our world as he transforms us, as he changes us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, that we will be like him out in our world, making a difference. 
for Jesus. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your persistent, present love, even in the midst of struggles and disappointments. You are the one who holds us and who keeps us. And one day we know that you will bring good out of all things that have happened. And therefore, we can have peace and even joy in the midst of a very imperfect world, not because of our circumstances, but because of your character and your goodness. You are a good, good father. That's who you are. And we are loved by you. Loved by you. That's who we are. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you for including us, male and female, all of us as first-class members of your family. Thank you, Lord, that you reconcile us to yourself and you reconcile us to one another. May this year be a year of resilient faith and the reconciling power of Christ in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.